Hey everyone, I'm Philip Anthony Albertelli, and this, of course, is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And before we start, I'd like to thank Freethinker215 and Hans Molman, Support Pennsylvania Nonbelievers, yes, that is the whole uh, username, for supporting the uh, the Week in Doubt on Patreon. Uh, so uh, thank you very much for becoming a Patreon supporter, a welcome, or should I say welcome back. Freethinker215 is a longtime supporter. And the pledge of $6.66 isn't lost on me. Hail the great beast, Nero Caesar. And uh, that reminds me, one of these days I want to get around to doing a short documentary episode on the number 666 and its significance in the Bible. Uh, but thank you for the support, my friend. It's greatly appreciated. I think I actually lost a couple of Patreon supporters, uh, but Free Thinker brings us up to 14, and that's just one shy of the 15 I was at uh, pre-COVID. But I know no one wants to hear me shill, so, uh, so let's move on. And don't worry, I have some religious-flavored news stories for you guys. But first, uh, it looks like the big story in the news as of yesterday. It's Saturday the 6th of June as I record this. Uh, you know, other than the ongoing civil unrest and the lingering pandemic, is the fact that to everyone's surprise, the numbers are in, and un unemployment, I can speak, uh, seems to have dropped down to 13%. And of course, Trump is using this to take a kind of victory lap, but, and I ain't no economist, uh, but is it really that surprising? I think a lot of people like myself were just temporarily laid off due to the whole COVID lockdown situation. And when the lockdown restrictions were lifted, uh, many of them were taken back as was expected by their employers, as was the case with me. I worked for my family's remodeling slash general contracting business, and as soon as the 18th of June rolled around, the temporary ban on construction was lifted, and we resumed work that day. I know some major retail chains went under. I heard Pier 1 went out of business. And I jokingly thought to myself, where am I going to buy my scented candles now? Uh, to be honest, though, I actually liked Pier 1. Even though I'm a godless heathen, I still really like Christmas and the holidays. And I used to like uh, the folksy Christmas ornaments and stuff they used to sell there. I used to buy those little pine cone owls or whatever the hell they are. Crap like that. Hell crap, what a classy show. Uh, anyways, so I think I mentioned last week that I pretty much had a whole scripted episode written out that dealt with my thoughts on the death or murder of George Floyd, as well as my thoughts on the relationship between law enforcement and the public in general. But then I spent about an hour responding to listener feedback, and that pretty much ate up the whole show. And that reminds me, just a quick heads up to YouTube viewers, I did actually publish an episode last week, but due to a lack of time and because I was a little self-conscious about the nature of the episode, I kind of had a little meltdown in the middle of it, but you know, what the hell, I could have edited it out, I left it in there. <laughs> I didn't get around to making a YouTube version, but if you want to hunt that episode down, you can find it on iTunes or through Podbean. And during the listener feedback, you know, responding to the listener feedback, I really covered a bunch of topics, including going all the way back to Gamergate and the kind of schism in the atheist community. I even touched on 
Thunderfoot and Anita and Anita Sarkeesian. So uh, yeah, some of you might find that interesting. And so I imagine by now you guys have heard everyone and their mother cover the George Floyd case and the continuing civil unrest. So I figured I'd just try to offer a kind of condensed or concise Cliff Notes version of what I was going to say in that scripted episode before we move on to the standard atheist fare. And so I think there really is this kind of tension that's inherent in the relationship between law enforcement and the public. I think on the one hand, we realize that in a civil society, we need some way to try to ensure or maintain, and I hate using the term because I think there's almost something inherently authoritarian about it, and that's probably because there is, but law and order. Ideally not in some oppressive and tyrannical application, but for both the good of the individual and society as a whole. A way to try and make society a safe place for everyone, a place where you don't have to sleep with one eye open, and if you find yourself in danger, or if you've been wrong, there's somewhere to turn. But I think the rub is, where the tension arises is, is the fact that I think people have an almost natural resentment of authority. No one wants to feel like there's a figurative, or in some cases, a literal boot on their neck. And I think most of us can probably relate to those mixed feelings about law enforcement. On the one hand, it's great knowing that if you're in trouble or if you feel like you're in danger, you can always call the cops. But on the other hand, no one likes the feeling of getting pulled over or, you know, checking the rearview mirror and seeing a cruiser behind you. And just speaking for myself, there's that strange, unnerving feeling I get when I enter a donut shop. And no, this isn't a, a cop joke. I seriously usually only encounter cops when I'm in a donut shop. But, you know, maybe you'll be standing in line behind a cop, some big jack tower of a human being with a gun hanging from his hip. And there's that feeling that, wow, society has invested this person with the power to wield authority over me, you know? And I'm not a legal expert, so I don't know what the law actually says about disrespecting an officer. But there's that knowledge that, you know, you know, you better watch your step, man. Um, if you step out of line, uh, if you show any kind of disrespect towards this person, it could end with you being roughed up or carted off to jail. So there's this almost kind of deference or obsequiousness that I say that... Uh, I, I know the word, I'm just tripping over my tongue, obsequiousness, <laughs> having trouble with the cue, that's expected. And I've always felt that there's something unjust about that. And in fairness, I think, you know, there really are some patient cops out there um, who put protocol before their ego. We've probably all seen video of cops being berated by someone and they just kind of, you know, stand there stoically trying to do their job. But on the other hand, a hell of a lot of videos of cops abusing their power and beating on people are worse. And on a side note, I think I first learned or read the word obsequious while reading uh, Jack Kerouac's On the Road. Uh, just a little fun fact. Anyway, uh, and maybe this would be a good time to share an anecdotal story. And I just want to preface it by saying uh, this is just my personal experience as a white boy in what used to be a small town. I know people experience a lot worse than this. See George Floyd. But I remember way back in the day, I was about 13, I think. My parents had gone away for the weekend, so I invited a group of my friends to stay over. 
We thought it would be fun to stay out late and walk around town, and so I think I mentioned this before, um, how around this time I kind of fell in with what some might call a bad crowd. Some of my friends, uh, you know, also just in their early teens, like me, had older siblings who had run who had run-ins with the law, or they themselves may have uh, been known to local authorities. But anyway, a cop spotted us walking around at night and dragged us down to the station. And I don't know if they were going for a scared straight kind of thing or what, whatever, but uh, it was bad. They were screaming at us. Oh, and I just remembered something. At the time, a new police station or some kind of annex to the existing one was being built. And I guess uh, it had been vandalized or something. And they thought we might have been the culprits. We weren't. Uh, I wasn't even sure what building they were talking about. Um, and we hadn't been there or, or to any building, you know, that night. So, yeah, they were screaming at us. They actually strip searched us all together in the same room. And this was before I had my adult circumcision. So, you know, there I was covering my little carrot, hoping no one would see my little elephant trunk. And before you even say it, whenever I mention my adult circumcision on the show, I inevitably, I, I can speak, I inevitably get attacked. What kind of person would willingly undergo a circumcision? Hey, I was like 19 and most people at the time were circumcised and I felt like a space alien. Yeah, chopping up baby wieners, bad. I get it. And if I could go back in time, I probably wouldn't do it or, you know, have it done. Now, leave me alone. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry if I sound glib, but it's like I'm on your side. I understand why, you know, general mutilation's barbaric and all that. So stop coming at me. Simmer down. Simmer. Simmer. Simmer down. Anyway, so yeah, they strip-searched us, and one of the cops there that night was a cop who was somewhat notorious around town, especially to the kids. It was uh, pretty much a well-known secret, shall we say, that the guy was on roids, uh, had a real hair-trigger temper, and was tall and really jacked, so a scary dude. And so uh, that concludes that little personal anecdote. Uh, and so I was going to say earlier that I think another factor that adds to this tension or divide between law enforcement and the public is that power tends to corrupt. And I'm sure to some degree, as many people have conjectured over the years, that the job probably attracts some people in certain instances who already have a bad temperament. You know, people who might like the idea of having power over others a bit too much. And it stinks because I think being a police officer has uh, the potential of being a very noble profession. And there probably are good cops out there who bring that nobility to the job. I can envision a person who becomes a cop for all the right reasons, who wants to give back to the community, who maintains his or her humanity, doesn't let their ego get in the way, and who recognizes fully the humanity of the civilians who they encounter throughout the day, you know? But unfortunately, as we know, there uh, does seem to be a troubling, uh, a troublingly large number of bad apples out there, enough to indicate that there's some kind of systemic a problem that seriously needs addressing. And speaking of bad apples, uh, we've probably all seen, you know, this flood of videos coming out during the civil unrest. Uh, you know, that show what uh, appears to be cops abusing their power. 
you know, uh, attacking peaceful protesters. Uh, in a couple of instances, cops uh, attacking elderly people without any apparent physical provocation. I think a week or so ago, there was footage of an old man with a cane who had walked up to some police in riot gear, and one of them starts bashing this little old man, you know, kind of a short guy, uh, looks like he might have been in his 70s or 80s, and this cop is just bashing this poor guy with his shield and keeps driving him back until he backs the guy up against one of those little metal fences cops use to create barricades. Uh, he shoves the guy one last time, and the guy goes backwards into the barricade or fence, and he and it both fall to the ground. A couple of other cops run up and carefully help the guy up. I like to think they did it out of a sincere concern for the man's well-being, but maybe they were just trying to cover their asses. I don't know. And then just yesterday, a clip went viral that shows a 75-year-old man looks pretty calm, not getting physical or anything. And a cop just shoves him, and this guy goes down on the cement. And uh, I think I heard someone commenting uh, that supposedly the sound of the guy's head hitting the, uh, the cement or concrete was so loud, it drew the attention of other cops. And the guy just falls eerily still, you know, where you're hoping that he's still alive, you know, when you're watching the video. And you see a pool of blood spreading out from his head. And I guess technically the blood was coming from his ears. Uh, turns out he's a fairly well-known Catholic peace activist. And I believe, you know, last I heard, he's supposedly in critical yet stable condition. Awful stuff. And then there's all the disturbing cases of members of the press being either arrested or assaulted by cops. There were at least two cases where a member of the press was hit in the eye, either with a rubber bullet or tear gas canister, you know. Uh, one uh, was a man, one was a woman. I think the man actually lost an eye. And the female reporter may have permanently lost her vision in the affected eye. And I don't know if it's true or not, but I've heard a few people comment that it seems like um, a lot of cops either don't know how to fire rubber bullets or they're doing it intentionally. But I guess you're supposed to aim at the ground and let the rubber bullet, you know, kind of maybe lose momentum or bounce off the ground, hit people in, you know, the shins or whatever. But it seems like cops are intentionally aiming at people's faces with these rubber bullets. Uh, wow. And so when all this started, there were a couple of cases of CNN reporters getting arrested. There was that unsettling video of a CNN crew. You know, they seemed like they were being calm and respectful, just kind of camped out near a line of cops. And they just started arresting them one by one. And the lead correspondent, you know, he seems like he really knew to stay calm and keep his cool, not escalate, you know, things. If he had, who knows, he may have gotten his head cracked on live TV. So uh, while he's being uh, cuffed, he's just calmly and respectfully asking why he's being arrested. And I don't think he ever got an answer. Uh, maybe he did and it just wasn't audible. But yeah, um, then they arrest the, the rest of the crew, cameramen and all. And uh, I guarantee there's a lot of schadenfreude out there, especially on the Trumpian right with people really taking joy and getting to see members of the press being mistreated and uh, you know especially because it uh, because it was CNN in particular and it's strange i remember before trump rose to power uh, cable news seemed to be kind of triple pronged you had fox you know leaning heavily to the right 
MSNBC leaning heavily left, and then the middle you had CNN, and CNN was kind of uh, where you went for objective, relatively unbiased news. And then because CNN dared to criticize, you know, Trump, he labeled them, quote unquote, fake news. And they've been, you know, rebranded in the eyes of the public, at least in the eyes of Trump's followers, as a left-leaning anti-Trump propaganda channel, you know? And that's one of the things that really makes me lose faith in the human race, you know, <laughs> how, how easily people are swayed by branding. And how, quote-unquote, fake news, you know, caught on like wildfire. And also, you had, uh, it was almost like a, like an army of zombies following Trump, repeating fake news, fake news. They didn't want to give, you know, any story that was, you know, critical of Trump the benefit of the doubt. They just kind of shut their brains off, and if it's anti-Trump, it's fake news. And I think that's kind of the magic of Trump. Definitely not the smartest guy in the room, to put it lightly, but he seems to intuitively know how to play people and how to project confidence. And his kind of bullshit doesn't work on everyone, but it works on enough people. And it's scary. I have neighbors and family members, not my immediate family, but like cousins and stuff like that, who still think Trump can do no wrong and who still want to see Obama's birth, birth certificate. And to me, like, I used to say, I used to think Trump was kind of like a fun figure, you know. I, I've never really been into reality television, but my guilty pleasure used to be the Celebrity Apprentice because sometimes I'd get to see celebrities who I haven't seen in a while, you know, on TV and kind of put in these kind of cringy, uh, you know, situations uh, like Pendulette and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, and so I remembered Trump from, you know, when I was a kid and, you know, there were Trump board games and his book, which I think it's the R of the Deal, which I think it's pretty much isn't a fact that that was ghostwritten. Um, I didn't start to really become soured on Trump until he started promoting the whole birther thing. And I really felt like the birther movement really showed a kind of ugly side of America. And I think even if the birther movement isn't or wasn't explicitly overtly racist, it was definitely nevertheless racist in nature or that was heavily implied. Uh, I think if it, if that had been a white-skinned guy named, you know, Gary Anderson instead of Barack Obama, you wouldn't have had this these birther conspiracy theories. Um, and I always said, you know, at the end of the day, let's say for the sake of argument, Barack Obama wasn't born in the States. Uh, I could be wrong. You know, maybe there's a legal scholar out there who can help me out. But his mother definitely was an American citizen. And if you're born abroad to an American mother, that makes you, by extension, you know, an American citizen as well. Am I right or am I right, right? And no people seem to have a problem with the fact that uh, Ted Cruz, is, Te is, is Ted Cruz, uh, does he have dual citizenship? I think he's originally from Canada, right? Yeah, but I just looked it up. So yeah, Ted Cruz was originally from Alberta. 
Um, yeah, but so imagine there was some white guy and, you know, um, there was murmurings that he might have been born abroad. Uh, he might have been born in Kenya where his parents were, you know, on safari or whatever. I don't know. Would those same people give a fuck? Would they? No, it's because he was a fucking brown guy named Barack Obama. And I'm not even trying to defend him because it's Barack Obama. I voted for Obama twice and I ended up becoming kind of, you know, disillusioned or disenchanted with Obama because he proved himself to be just another politician, you know. Um, but it, it's just the principle of it that don't try to say it wasn't racist because it was fucking racist. And here I'm almost going to have another meltdown. But anyway, back to the subject of uh, the media or the press. And, you know, to be honest, I get most of my news online. I don't even watch cable news anymore, really. But I still see clips from the big cable news channels online, and I get notifications from their apps. And uh, is CNN critical of Trump? I'd say hell yeah. Uh, but how much of this is because of they're just trying to offer honest analysis of Trump and his administration? And how much is them, you know, trying to push back against Trump for, you know, being targeted by him and being labeled fake news? I, I don't know. But I'm glad they're standing up to him. I know the press gets a lot of hate and we all, you know, including myself, probably get turned off when we see the press swarming all over someone or frustrated when they seem to harp on the same boring or depressing story all day. But as annoying as they can sometimes, you know, seem, a free press is an integral part of a free society. Without the press, you'd have no idea what was going on out there in the world. Imagine if all we had was some kind of state-run TV. An idea which I think Trump actually floated uh, when his war with the media first began. Uh, the government could just spoon-feed you whatever they wanted, whatever it took to keep the, you know, the sheep complacent. Even in this internet age where any weirdo like myself can start a podcast or a YouTube channel, website, blog, whatever, the stories everyone covers still, you know, usually come from news agencies like the Associated Press or CNN, etc., etc. And that's not to take away from the importance of people who go out there and capture newsworthy video on their phones and upload it to the internet. I mean, that's how we found out about a cop kneeling on a man's neck for nine minutes, you know, and there's so many other videos like that that help shine a light on this systemic problem of police brutality. And I think just all around now, you know, amateur videos really help add to, you know, the stories of the day and people who happen to be where, you know, members of the press aren't and they can kind of add to the, uh, to the story and help fill in the blanks, you know. And it always blows my mind, the things people are still willing to do even when they know they're being recorded. Think of all the incriminating footage that's come from cops' own body cams or, you know, or video of cops abusing someone, such as in the George uh, Floyd case, and the, the perpetrator looks right into the camera. Uh, and I'm glad to be living in this age where everyone has, you know, a recording device in their pocket and where often I think it should be always cops are made to wear body cams. Uh, knowing they're being filmed, as I just mentioned, you know, doesn't always stop them, sadly, from abusing their power. But hopefully it's having some kind of net effect and uh, giving at least some cops pause or incentive to check their egos and follow protocol. But yeah, to come full circle, like I said at the top of the show, I think there is this, you know, inherent tension regarding the relationship 
uh, between law enforcement and the public. You add racial and class tensions and a history of cops abusing or killing minorities to the mix, and you get yourself a uh, powder keg. It's, it's no surprise to me that people are taking to the streets. And sadly and ironically, here we have people protesting against police brutality, and what do we see? Yet more police brutality. Uh, video after sickening video of people in uniform uh, abusing their power. And uh, yet there have been some moving and inspiring stories of cops, you know, siding with protesters. Um, I think cops even taking part in marches. And I think there was one cop who actually uh, quit and, and just, you know, joined the protesters. And yet, sadly, and this really kind of sickens me, I guess the, there's also been instances of cops, you know, for what seems to be photo opportunity purposes, you know, kind of these cynical moves where they uh, w will allow themselves to be photographed or videotaped, you know, kneeling with the protesters and everything. And then some of the same cops shortly after, you know, taking part in the uh, in, in the abuse of pe peaceful protesters, etc. Um, and I didn't want to believe that was true, but it does seem like that's the case in, in some instances. And I'm just some dude with a podcast, so I don't know if this is already the case or not, but it seems like there should be some pretty basic common sense things that should be taught or emphasized during police training. Like, uh, the job's not about your ego. Your job is literally to protect and serve. Try to, you know, execute your job with a sense of humanity. No unauthorized chokeholds or other unnecessary or potentially fatal methods of restraint. And once you have someone subdued already on the ground and cuffed, treat them the way you'd want y yourself or someone you care about to be treated. And uh, to revisit the thing about steroids for a moment, um, you know, even back in my day, as I, as I was alluding to with uh, my story about Officer Downer, you know, cops taking steroids was a kind of open secret. And uh, it's such a horrible combination. Someone with a gun and a badge taking a substance that's known to increase aggression and give someone a hair trigger temper. Real bad idea all around. I remember back when I was like 19 or 20, I had a couple of friends who decided to do steroids. One was a really nice kid, sensitive, thoughtful. He was a devout Catholic, and we used to have uh, arguments about religion. But still a really nice kid, and we were good friends. He decided he wanted to join the Air Force. And uh, it's almost like, you know, it seemed like he consciously decided he wanted to shift his persona and become more tough. So he got into lifting and, yes, steroids. It was crazy the markedly drastic effect it had on his personality. He became combative and belligerent. Got into a fight at a party we were at in, you know, in the middle of the kitchen with, uh, with another, the other friend who was doing steroids. Um, I think most young guys on some level desire to be big and strong, feel powerful, but I just never cared enough. You know, I was never tempted to, to do that shit. I've, I've done a lot of substances in my day, but not that shit. I, I'd rather expand my consciousness with some shrooms or something than take some junk that's going to turn me into a rampaging ape. Um, supposedly shrinks your nuts and gives you bitch tits, too. Not, not really a tempting trade-off. And that, that's the first time on the show I ever said bitch tits. It's fine. I actually, out of respect for my female friends and women in general, I don't call women, you know, bitches. But I think bitch tits is all right if I'm referring to, uh, 
you know, someone with gynecomastia, is that how you say it? <laughs> anyway, show's taking a weird turn. And did I say this was going to be the Cliff Notes version? If so, I'd hate to see the book. Uh, I spent so much time on that stuff, I was debating whether I should still run through the Atheist News Story segment. But why not? Let's do it. I think most of these are from The Friendly Atheist. And this first one, I read through it earlier. And to be honest, I think the title might be a little clickbaity. Uh, but here we go. It's entitled uh, Catholic Brain Surgeon and Evolution Denier. And this is a quote, COVID-19 is atheism gone viral. And this isn't by Hemant Mehta. It looks like it's by Terry Firma. Um, pretty sure that's probably not their uh, their given name. Anyway, and this story, is, uh, this story dates to the 2nd of June, so not that long ago. And so I'll read a bit here. Let's see. Michael Egner, a Catholic and evolution denier, affiliated with the Discovery Institute, a conservative think tank that pushes intelligent design, is angry about a now-deleted Steven Pinker tweet that read, Belief in the afterlife is a malignant delusion, since it devalues actual lives and discourages action that would make them longer, safer, and happier. That unkind observation, which was taken apart by Alex Berezow, <laughs> Berezow, I don't know, on the website of the American Council on Science and Health, leads Egner to conclude that the coronavirus pandemic has occasioned a pandemic of another sort, anti-religious hate. A bold claim, but not one that Egner in his piece makes the slightest attempt to support. He's too busy galloping to the task at hand, slandering unbelievers. And so here's another quote from this uh, brain surgeon. Uh, isn't it weird? Because I think uh, Ben Carson, also very conservative, uh, also very religious, is also a, uh, a brain surgeon or neurosurgeon, whatever the, uh, the proper term is. And uh, I think I've covered Ben Carson already on the show and... Uh, I don't know if I should even bother revisiting that dead horse, but I, I think, uh, yeah, it just it blows my mind that someone um, can be so intelligent and well-educated and be trusted with, you know, operating or, or be skilled, you know, operating on people's brains and yet still be, uh, you know, it can still deny evolution or whatever. Uh, kind of scary, but I guess in a way it's kind of like, just because you're smart in one area or skilled in one area doesn't necessarily mean that you're seeing, you're seeing clearly in other areas or, you know, you can always compartmentalize. Uh, but anyway, so the, the quote is, The irony in Pinker's outburst is twofold. First, Pinker's own ideology, atheism, has been an unrelenting, blood-stained assault on human life since its conception on the world stage in the French Revolution's reign of terror. So that's, I mean, saying that atheism, which is essentially just, you know, lack of belief in, in, in a higher power or God, saying that atheism started in, you know, in the 18th century. Uh, I imagine there's always been people throughout history who doubted the belief in a higher power. I think we can go to the, uh, back to the ancient world and find examples of that. 
And so here the writer of the article continues their commentary. This is bizarre in the extreme, and not just because atheism, that is, not believing in gods, must be nearly as old as humanity. Certainly, philosophical atheist thought in Europe and Asia probably predates Christianity by five or six centuries. To hold up the reign of terror as an atheist-driven event is to mock historical fact. Egner's corroborating link goes to a Britannica entry that says nothing about the period's anti-religious fervor. Why? Because the batshit crazy bloodthirsty Maximilien de Robespierre, who briefly exercised tyrannical control over the French government in, in, almost in 1973, in 1793 and 94, was a deist. The accusation from conservative Catholics that the reign of terror was carried out by atheists, I previously addressed that calumny here, is nuts. Robespierre believed in God and tried to get France to adopt a new religion that he called the cult of the supreme being. And I'll jump down a bit. How anyone can get from this that atheists were behind the reign of terror is a mystery. Either Egnor didn't avail himself of the most basic facts on the topic, or he knowingly pushes falsehoods. He continues, and here's a quote from that brain surgeon. I'm sorry, I'm being sarcastic every time I say that brain surgeon. Uh, if the symbol for Christianity and human affairs is the Red Cross in the hospital, the symbol for atheism in human affairs is the guillotine and the gulag. Atheism, when it, when it achieves government power, is the most effective instrument of mass homicide in human history. And so then the author of the article continues, Again, nonsense. The American Red Cross was founded by Clara Barton, a humanitarian, suffragist, supporter, and civil rights advocate. Religiously, she was a progressive Unitarian who had fond memories of her parents' church, but didn't often attend church as an adult, and who declined to officially join the, Ut U the Unitarian faith. Ugh finally got that one out. Uh, anyway, despite its name, the Red Cross is not rooted in Christianity in any meaningful way. The symbol designed by Swiss-born co-founder Henry Dunant, uh, I guess that's how you pronounce it, a humanitarian Christian with pacifist leanings, is an inversion of his country's flag in a reference to the connection between Switzerland and the original Geneva Convention that Dunant helped birth. As for Joseph Stalin and the gulags, unless Christians want to say that Adolf Hitler was chiefly motivated by his Christianity, he wasn't. They're going to want to acknowledge that Stalin wasn't principally driven by his atheism. Both dictators used their views of religion as an opportunistic weapon to get what they wanted. Aryan supremacy for the Fuhrer and a communist paradise for the Red Tsar. There's much more to say on the topic, and Christopher Hitchens did it more than ably in chapter 17 of God is Not Great. And I was going to stop for a minute in case there's some of you out there who don't know who Steven Pinker is. My guess is if you're listening to, you know, a kind of an atheist podcast like mine, you might have a good idea of who he is already. But here I'm just, you know, reading from a Wikipedia stub. Stephen Arthur Pinker is a Canadian-American cognitive psychologist, linguist, and popular science author. He is Johnston, or Johnstone, a family professor in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University, and is known for his advocacy of evolutionary psychology and the computational theory of mind. And so here's the next quote from that brain surgeon. 
So it says, uh, the second irony of Pinker's assault on religious belief is especially relevant to this coronavirus pandemic. COVID-19 arose in China, which is the most atheist nation on earth. Uh, it is undeniable that, I don't know why I'm laughing because there's obviously truth in that, but it's just the fact that he's trying to blame uh, atheism for COVID-19. It is undeniable that the Chinese scientists and government officials, atheists all, lied and covered up the pandemic, and in doing so, spread it to the world. The COVID pandemic is just another iteration of a recurring theme in modern Western civilization. The hallmarks of atheism in power are lies, carnage, and economic devastation. If there is a quote-unquote malignant delusion in this pandemic, it is the delusion that the spread of the coronavirus is attributable to religious believers. A more accurate inference about the role of religion in the, in the spread of COVID-19, given the origin of the pandemic from the incompetence and malfeasance of the world's most atheist nation, is that COVID-19 is atheism gone viral. So I guess it really wasn't a clickbait title. It was pretty much dead on. <laughs> this is what the guy said, you know what I mean? I was going to chime in here, but I think the author of the article does a pretty good job of uh, responding. So uh, I'll just continue reading what he has to say. Please, the 1918 Spanish flu, its name notwithstanding, probably originated in the highly religious United States, in Kansas to be precise. Marburg virus spread from labs in Germany and Serbia, neither of which are atheist countries. Measles probably worked its way around the world from South Africa. Smallpox from India or Egypt. Hepatitis B from the Middle East and North Africa. I'm not sure why Egner presents atheists as the architects and spreaders of COVID-19. Does he by the same token wish to place the millions of deaths from Spanish flu, measles, and smallpox at the feet of religious people? And so there's a little side note here where the, uh, the author of the article notes that he's the father of three Chinese-American daughters and can't help but read Egner's article and hear Trump's dog whistle all over again. Uh, then he continues, I also wonder about this. If it took lying, murderous Chinese atheists to ultimately infect good Christian Americans, shouldn't Egner reasonably devote a word to the Christianist administration that bungled its virus response so badly that the United States, with just 4.3% of the world population, has almost 30% of all COVID-19 deaths? That's a pretty good point. Um, skip down a little bit here. For a man who knows so much about the brain, might we expect Egner to be to get better at using his? And uh, I was just going to revisit Pinker's tweet that kind of, you know, set all this off. Belief in the afterlife is a malignant delusion since it devalues actual lives and discourages action that would make them longer, safer, and happier. I think in a way, I mean, I don't uh, follow Pinker uh, on Twitter. I may, well, I may technically follow him, but I don't spend a lot of time on Twitter, so I don't know what his usual tone is. Uh, Pinker is such a kind of mild-mannered guy. Uh, it does, maybe it does seem a little bit more confrontational, you know, than what I would imagine his usual tone to be. But I definitely think there is some truth in what he's saying. And it's interesting to note, he doesn't mention religion. He says belief in the afterlife specifically is a malignant delusion. But of course, belief in afterlife and religion, you know, usually go hand in hand. 
Not always. You know, there's a lot of people out there without any religious affiliation who still believe in, you know, airy-fairy stuff and believe in some kind of notion of an afterlife. But I think how toxic or malignant a belief in the afterlife turns out to be depends on the individual. It depends on the teachings of their faith, how seriously they take the teachings of that faith. Uh, I mean, when you look at something like uh, the Heaven's Gate cult, in that case, you know, uh, belief in an afterlife ended up literally being fatal. You know what I mean? So once again, belief in the afterlife is a malignant delusion. And then he adds, since it devalues actual lives and discourages actions that would make them longer, safer, and happier. And this does make me think of COVID-19 because on the show, I covered instances where people weren't taking proper precautions, no gloves, no masks, because they thought, you know, Jesus would magically protect them from the virus. I covered that story about that woman who... You know, comes out of a church and she's being, you know, recorded by someone and she's going right up to the person talking about how um, she doesn't have to worry about coronavirus because she's bathed in the blood of the lamb. And that other person who was at an anti-lockdown protest, no gloves, no mask and saying whether or not he gets sick or, you know, it, it that's up to God. It's not in his hands. So uh, that is scary. But we're at the, uh, actually over the 40 minute mark now, and I can tell my brain's kind of petering out here. <laughs> yeah, I've been going at this for a while. So I guess I'll call this episode a wrap. As always, thanks everyone for listening uh, or watching if you're, you know, looking at the YouTube version. As always, you guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page, follow the show on Twitter, even though I don't do much there on there. But I do post, you know, links to uh, the most recent episodes. And I also, you know, tweet out links to some news stories I, f I find interesting, things like that. Uh, if you want to support the show monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and support what I do here for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, as always, you know, once again, thanks for listening and until next time.